Welcome to FRT, the IIF's podcast at the intersection of finance, regulation, and technology. I'm Jessica Grenier, Managing Director of the Digital Finance Team here at the IIF. I'm here with Tommaso Mancini Grifoli and Gabriel Soderberg of the International Monetary Fund today. Tommaso is Division Chief in the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF, focused on monetary policy, central banking, and fintech. Gabriel is likewise financial sector expert in the Monetary and Capital Markets Department at the IMF and published a February 2022 report with Tommaso and colleagues at the IMF titled Behind the Scenes of Central Bank Digital Currency. We will discuss this report today as well as broader questions regarding CBDC and digital assets. Welcome Tommaso and welcome Gabriel. Thanks very much, Jess. Thank you very much. So Tommaso, let's start with you. Why don't you give us a baseline on what the IMF's role is with respect to central bank digital currency development? Okay, so it's a pleasure to be on this podcast. Thanks very much for inviting us. The IMF has uh, multiple functions. It uh, provides surveillance. So it meets with country authorities and reviews uh, macroeconomic policies. It provides capacity development. So again, it works closely with country authorities to help them achieve specific targets and solve specific questions that they have. And uh, of course, it provides analytical backing to those functions. So in the form of papers, analysis, uh, trying to push the field of study. And so I would say that these three functions apply to the work of CBDC. So in our analytical work, we try to reflect on the implications of CBDC for monetary policy, for financial stability, for the international monetary system. We try to understand what implications CBDC could have, say, on capital flows or on the ability of countries to control those flows. That's our analytical work. But then we also engage in capacity development. There are actually a lot of countries coming to the IMF asking for the IMF's help and assistance in thinking about CBDC. Is CBDC right for me? Is CBDC, what are the risks of CBDC given my environment? How might I design a CBDC pilot in order to test out some of the policy implications of CBDC? These are the types of questions that countries come to us with in this area. And then, of course, we're also involved in surveillance. Surveillance can take different forms. You know about the Article 4 surveillance, where we uh, meet with, uh, with countries and review their policies, but also financial sector assessment programs. And in some countries that are more advanced in developing CBDCs, we work with them to try to understand the implications for the financial sector. Will financial stability be enhanced or undermined by the introduction of CBDC and are the right plans in place. So that's how I think we interact with countries on CBDC. So what observations would you make about the global development and implementations of CBDCs thus far? Yeah, so we wrote a first paper on CBDC in 2018. And back then, most people were wondering why we had invested so many resources in writing such a paper. And it didn't take long for countries to actually themselves get involved in CBDC and for the topic to basically explode in terms of interest and attention in international policy circles. 
There is strong interest in CBDC around the world. We see more than 100 countries investigating CBDC in one way or another. There are fewer, of course, that are advanced in concrete investigation and testing. And some that have been doing, about 12 worldwide actually, that have been doing public pilots with their populations. And of course, we have two countries that have introduced CBDC outright. These numbers are changing and growing by the day. And we are still very much in an investigation stage globally. Um, Countries are still asking questions about CBDC and still testing out the implications of some of the design of CBDCs. We're in an investigation stage, but that is moving quickly. So there's an increasing number of countries that are testing things out, that are considering and then running pilots. And uh, it won't be long before we'll have more countries having introduced CBDCs. So in your February 2022 report, you note that a majority of IMF member countries are actively evaluating CBDCs, with only a few having actually issued CBDCs or undertaken these extensive pilots or, or tests. And as a summary states, the paper shines a spotlight on just a handful of these countries that are kind of at the frontier um, in the hope of identifying and sharing some insights for those countries that may follow behind them or in their footsteps. What are some of the key insights that you share in the paper? And, and also, if there's one or two interesting insights that you didn't quite get into the paper, but might be worth uh, sharing, I'd be interested in hearing them too. So part of, we were talking before about the role of the IMF, right? And, and part of the role uh, in capacity development is sharing experiences. This is such a fast-moving field that it's essential to uh, identify uh, lessons, draw them out, and share them. Countries are thirsty to learn about the experiences of their peers. And, uh, you know, everybody's working very hard on this. And it's not, not always easy to take a pause and call up a neighbor to find out what they're doing. So the IMF can play an important role in gathering these experiences and sharing them. So this paper identifies a couple of commonalities between countries and some lessons, including in the split between the role of the public and private sector in providing CBDCs. But I'll let Gabriel provide some more uh, details on this. Yeah, so I think uh, Tommaso states it very well here that in, in a sense, when I think about it, it's almost like when countries engage in CBDC projects, it's almost like they are becoming part of an international effort in order to uh, explore this field. And uh, what we see here is in, in the paper, we see that, first of all, that there are still, this is a very early field, there's no doubt about that. But there are also some clear consensuses that are starting to arise. And I think the, the, the most clear there is that central banks are trying to preserve basically the distribution of labor between the public and private sector that has been established for at least the last hundred years. While doing that, they're also seeking to update the role of the central bank and updating what they do for the digital era. And the way they do this is, for instance, again, this goes into the question of design. So what they do is that they try to design the CBDC in a way that will ensure that it is uh, mostly used for small retail payments and don't, for instance, uh, lead to widespread disintermediation of established private banks, for instance. And in those cases, how, how might they be going about that? 
So in terms of if you think about designing in order to preserve the role of, of private banks, so in essence what they do, most central banks that we see either having issued or are circulating these as part of, of a pilot project, what they do is typically that they put a cap on how much CBDC a person can own and also how many transactions they can do. Just to follow up, I think that you know what we've identified in this paper are some really interesting trade-offs that central banks are facing. And one trade-off, for instance, is between financial inclusion, getting more people to use digital forms of payments, and financial integrity, which is respecting the rules for anti-money laundering, uh, know your customer, etc. So for financial integrity, you would want to know a lot about your users. For financial inclusion, you may not want to require a lot of information from your users because a lot of people in disadvantaged situations don't have the proper documentation. Simply the national identity, the passports, the, the identity cards necessary to be onboarded. So what do you do? Clearly, there's, there's a trade-off. So what do you do? You issue a wallet that requires very little information from you, but that has a very low limit on how much you can spend. That will help those who need to be included. And then you issue another wallet that requires a lot of information from you, but that has much higher spending limits, and that satisfies financial integrity. So this is what central banks now call tiered wallets, basically wallets that are customizable in the extent of information they require of users and in the types of payments, basically the size of payments that users can make. So it occurs to me that in issuing different sizes of wallets, however, and to have particular limitations on the amount that you could hold or that you could transfer at a given time or within a period of time, that some form of identity must be attached to those wallets so that you could confirm that the same person perhaps doesn't have five of the same wallets with the same transaction limits and thus essentially has, you know, 5x whatever the limit is supposed to be. Does this seem like a, a clear digital identity play or, or might I say it hinges on the resolution of some kind of form of national identity or digital identity in order for such a system to realistically guarantee both integrity and inclusion? Yeah, so in a way, the wallets that don't require much information but have very low caps on spending satisfy financial inclusion and financial integrity to the extent that very little money can be spent. So how much damage can you really do, right? Now, of course, you would want to make sure that an individual cannot accumulate 50 wallets because then uh, if you hit the cap on each one, uh, in aggregate, you may be spending amounts that could be considered destabilizing, risky, or dangerous for financial integrity purposes. So you'd need some sort of check. But the idea here is that central banks recognize that their countries may not be able to develop and deploy a digital identity overnight so that as a stopgap measure, you could have these wallets with low limits. And then eventually, once a full-fledged digital ID is issued and adopted, you could migrate those users to wallets that have higher limits and are, are more closely monitored. But Jess, this, this brings up a thorny question. 
which is that of preservation of privacy. And each country will have its own preferences for privacy. And in some countries, the wallets that require very little information will not just be favored by those needing to be included, but also favored by those seeking to make private transactions. And there can be legitimate reasons to make private transactions. I may want to buy a present for my wife for her birthday without her finding out by looking at the CBDC bill or the credit card bill, right? There are legitimate reasons for me to want to make private transactions. And again, you know, different states will have different preferences for this, but these types of wallets requiring very little information and allowing for low spending limits. So I won't be able to buy her a diamond ring, but I might be able to buy her flowers and chocolate, right? And, and that is perfectly legitimate. And countries are wrestling with this and they have to get privacy right so that CBDC will one day be adopted. If they get privacy wrong, adoption will be problematic. I think central banks have understood that people value privacy up to a certain point, and thus the means of payment that is offered has to re reflect that, those preferences. So privacy certainly seems to be one aspect that will be critical to the development and, and the adoption, ultimately, if, if you want to have a successful CBDC, as well as guaranteeing integrity and then addressing the inclusion angle. What other benefits or, or challenges in particular um, do you see with bringing about the actual implementation of a CBDC in real life? So I'll pass it over to Gabriel for the challenges. Uh, there are many. But I'd like to say one thing, and that is you spoke about a successful CBDC. And a successful CBDC is not necessarily one that is very widely adopted. In fact, we say this in the paper, central banks are increasingly thinking about, quote unquote, a sweet spot of adoption. And that is sufficient adoption so that uh, CBDC serves to discipline uh, the private markets, serves as an option in case private payment markets uh, stop functioning, so ensures resilience, but not excessive adoption that CBDC would disintermediate the banking system altogether and crowd out innovation by the private sector in the payment space. So there's this notion of a sweet spot of adoption that exists on paper, whether it can be achieved in practice, whether adoption can be fine-tuned sufficiently by central banks is an open question and, and one that we'll just have to find out through pilots that are precious to, uh, to deliver information on adoption patterns. A very good question, and I think often uh, either forgotten or, or not thought of. So I, I'm glad that you brought that up. From what I can see, I think that so far central banks are, if they are erring, they are erring on the side of caution here. Because at the moment, I think they're exploring very tight uh, controls on, on CBDC. So I think the risk of having too little adoption through uh, control is probably larger than um, having the opposite too large at this point. But we will see, as, as Tommaso said, and I think central banks are exploring these and, and experimenting. So we will see. So I think when, when we speak about benefits and challenges, I think we must remember that benefits will be different depending on countries, what country wants to do. 
and depending on how they want to design their CBDCs. The benefits you can achieve will depend on what kind of design you give it. And the kind of design that you would want to have is the one that helps you achieve to mitigate your challenges, in a sense, in the country. So we see some countries that see CBDC particularly as a way to increase digitalization of their payment system. And in other countries where digital payments are already being used to a large extent, uh, such as my own home country, Sweden, uh, central banks instead see benefits from, for instance, ensuring competition in the future payments market uh, and resilience through adding extra redundant features to, to the payment market. So I think that is key here to take into account the differences between countries, recognizing the role of uh, proper design, and then go from there. When it comes to challenges, I think you can see it in two ways. One is practical, uh, and they certainly raise, uh, in our paper, central banks raise a few of these. So, for instance, some of ob obvious, uh, such as the uncertainty of a new field. They say that there is very little past experience to go on when it comes to designing some of these CBDCs. Resource constraints, some of these are small central banks, takes resources, manpower, finance, etc., to do this. Choosing the right technology. Technology change very quickly now. So how do you choose the right technology? And what happens if my central bank chooses one set of technology and it turns out to be not the best technology? And then all the other central banks choose better technologies and I'm stuck there with my old technology. That is something that some of them raise. And then there are some, some other things such as getting the legal aspects correct, solving particular technical issues such as offline capacity, etc. Then there is, I think, perhaps the bigger challenges. We already touched upon this when it came to, for instance, risks to financial stability. If people start withdrawing their bank deposits, and will this mean that the banks go bankrupt? Then will that mean that there will be a financial crisis, etc.? So I think here we can talk about different phases. I mean, I started with these kind of things quite some while ago. And there was like a first phase in which we all identified all the potential risks. We built like a risk landscape, which was the first phase. The second phase now is that central banks, the, the risk landscape has been, has been established. And now they are instead looking at how can we mitigate these risks by, again, looking at careful design. And I think, again, when it comes to the risk for financial stability and bank disintermediation, which we already touched upon, that is what really goes into the design of these tiered wallets that Tomasa told about with putting caps on them. So you, really, you can't really quickly withdraw lots of money from the banking system because the wallet system won't allow this. So that is one example. We are in here in this more experimental phase. Central banks are taking the risks and looking at what risks can be mitigated and then and if they can, how? Can I come in just very briefly, just to emphasize one point and identify a second? On the positive side, what I wanted to clarify, I think, is that when I talk to countries, I really see two groups emerging. Countries that are predominantly interested in financial inclusion and countries that are predominantly interested in the efficiency of their payment systems. Obviously, the lower income countries will be more interested in the, the virtues of CBDC in spurring financial inclusion. And the very advanced countries are more interested in CBDCs as uh, a way to improve the efficiency of payment systems by offering programmability, uh, easier cross-border payments, interoperability between privately issued forms of money, and then you have countries, of course, in between where there's a mix of these two objectives. The other thing to consider on the hurdle side is that central banks are, I think, increasingly coming to grips 
with the difficulty of implementing CBDC, retail CBDC. The costs that are associated with just ensuring cybersecurity, for instance, are enormous. You just need to compare the uh, spending of a large company like Amazon Web Services on their cybersecurity in their software centers. And the the costs are just astronomical for an industrial-grade application that is available to retail users. If you think also about the costs of keeping up to date with an evolving technology and issuing maintenance patches, software updates, etc., those are also enormous. Getting into digital is like jumping into a moving stream, right? Remember when cameras used film, all you needed to do is buy the best camera on the market today, and 20 years down the line, it would still be the best camera. In digital, you buy the best camera today, and tomorrow, literally, it's out of date. And as a camera producer, you have to invest heavily in renewing the technology and keeping up to speed. So I think that um, central banks are increasingly asking themselves this question. They're increasingly looking for options, such as establishing consortiums between central banks, working together to share some of these fixed costs of development and maintenance, and thinking about outsourcing some of these functions to the private sector. There are advantages and significant disadvantages and risks from doing so. And I think that is one of the big operational challenges that is emerging. There are certainly a number of different conversations going on, the the debate about whether a country might pursue a retail CBDC or a wholesale CBDC or both. If you could have a wholesale CBDC combined with tokenized deposits of some kind, I think each rightfully um, depending on the current infrastructure payments infrastructure that any given country has or the or the problems or, or issues. Um, I think, uh, Gabriel, as you highlighted earlier, just the uh, differing motivations in a country, depending on what that country wants to solve or address or improve or opportunities that it sees. Um, so I, I think I, I am always amazed by the sort of rainbow of, of different options that are under consideration and the importance of evaluating all of those. And then somehow what seems to be, you know, what really hits me as the challenge is figuring out how all of those recognizing that different countries may arrive at different conclusions based on, you know, what their motivation is, um, how we end up at interoperability at the end of the day, recognizing not only, you know, one technology choice might be different or a design choice might be different, but that one country may may opt to pursue a retail CBDC, one may opt to pursue a, a wholesale situation with tokenized deposits or one, you know, may do both or, or all of these different things. Um, it is interesting to me. I don't know if, if you have some thoughts about how we might hopefully end up at a global interoperable system one day. Yes, that's a very good question. It's, of course, the question, one of the, one of the themes that emerged most clearly during the spring meetings at the IMF uh, just now in April 2022. And the first thing you asked is about wholesale versus retail. Wholesale CBDC is a CBDC that is available to a subset of banks that have a direct relationship with the central bank to settle transactions among themselves. 
very much like central bank reserves, uh, except that you might be introducing a slightly different technology that allows for some degree of programmability or other features that are not currently available in the RTGS platform, real-time gross settlement systems, that is. The retail CBDC is what we've been speaking about until now, which is a CBDC that we can hold in our own hands. Uh, and indeed, for cross-border payment solutions, most solutions that are currently being investigated actually have more to do with wholesale CBDC than retail. And the idea is still to have cross-border payments being intermediated by a, a subset of banks. And by keeping that subset relatively contained, it seems easier for now to be able to test out solutions. But it doesn't mean that in the future, we not, might not be able to use retail CBDCs to make cross-border payments seamlessly. So you and I might hold a digital dollar. We have a friend in Sweden, Gabriel's friend in Sweden, who uh, deals in digital krona, and we could send a token directly. Now, how will that happen? What is this dream of interoperability? It's not going to be everybody using the exact same platform, network, protocol, technology, and design. There's not going to be a single CBDC worldwide, a single model of CBDC worldwide that everybody will use. That, that is, of course, the easiest way to solve interoperability, but we need to be realistic. It's not going to happen. And so we need platforms that can talk to different types of CBDCs and legacy systems um, that it can interoperate with them and allow for the exchange of uh, digital forms of money on the basis of minimum standards that the platform would uh, would propose. But I don't think that we'll ever really live. I mean, there, there's no example that will lead us to believe that we might come to a world where everybody uses the same uh, CBDC. And I can add a little bit also from the paper that several of the jurisdictions we talked to did raise this, uh, especially if what if, uh, what if we choose a technology and everyone else chooses something else and we can't speak to each other. And I think this, this really points to the need to already now start to cooperate and information sharing, as we mentioned before, because once you already have all these established systems, it's become much more difficult and expensive to impose interoperability on a system that's already established firmly. So that really points to starting working on that now before CBDC really becomes established. The second thing to say is that this is also part of the ongoing um, collaboration between the IMF, the World Bank, and the Bank for International Settlements and the BIS uh, Innovation Hub on enhancing cross-border payments. And the first report was published 2021 in July and identified three main ways in which CBC could potentially be used to enhance cross-border payment, among other ways to do so. So I think no one is thinking that CBDC might be the only way to do cross-border payments in the future. But I think the idea is here to explore what could CBDC potentially do to enhance cross-border payments. Of your efforts and work together with the World Bank, the BIS, and particularly you mentioned the BIS Innovation Hubs, I know that there are a number of projects and pilots that are being done out of the hubs. Are there any you know, a particular project or two that you find of particular interest in solving some of these issues or where you think some learnings have been, you know, very, very valuable for other countries that are working on this to potentially pay attention to at this time? Yeah, so the BIS Innovation Hub is an admirable organization that serves a very important purpose 
It's essentially an R&D hub for central banks. And it makes a lot of sense to unify R&D efforts because uh, there are high fixed costs associated with research and development. And there are strong synergies, of course, between the work that is going on. The Innovation Hub uh, has projects in the area of, of CBDCs, but it also in other technologies and, and functions. In the specific area of CBDCs, cross-border payments are mostly being investigated by connecting wholesale CBDC projects. And there are a lot of lessons that can be learned. I think that there is a model that seems to be emerging as a, a viable model, and that is to have a platform in which a representation of central bank reserves, digital representation of central bank reserves, can be seamlessly traded. And the example there is the MCBDC bridge project between the Bank of Thailand, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and now other central banks, including the People's Bank of China. And there are similar projects, uh, such as Project Dunbar, as well as some projects in Switzerland, Helvetia and Jura, uh, that uh, adopt similar types of approaches. Whether that is an approach that is scalable, that could be ported to other countries, remains to be seen. But we have seen that this works. And it works not only to make cross-border payments more efficient, but also works to incorporate policy objectives such as controlling capital flows. So Thailand, for instance, has capital flow management measures in order to limit the extent of foreign currency trading and ownership on the part of its residents. And those capital flow management measures can be incorporated into the cross-border trading platform. And that's a big advantage. I don't know if you want to get more into the topic of currency substitution and, and uh, capital flow management measures, but that, that is an important uh, part of the uh, equation. It certainly is. I, I have spoken with um, various representatives of, from different countries who have asked you know, our, our opinion on you know, how they should think about a CBDC or how they should think about you know, Bitcoin um, or how they should think about stable coins or other potential instruments and how they would interact with their economies. And certainly the, the question of uh, capital flow management and the impacts to underlying, uh, you know, macro prudential health of their economies, I think is a very salient, um, you know, point and, and aspect for each one of them to consider. So with that said, let's turn to the IMF for a moment um, and, and ask kind of the, the $64,000 question is, how is the IMF thinking about um, digital assets in terms of its own potential use for such an asset or, or creation, um, if, if it is thinking about it and how it, you know, the IMF's own activities um, or ability to accomplish some of its objectives or, or mandates could be impacted or improved? Any opportunities? Just for now, we're really focused on helping our member countries understand, deal with, leverage new digital forms of money while minimizing risks. We're not so focused on internal operations. We have some groups, of course, that are investigating new technologies to see where opportunities lie, but I think that's an approach we've always taken. And so we don't have anything planned uh, or under investigation uh, that would suddenly revolutionize the way in which we work. That being said, we're conscious and we've said, uh, we're conscious of the fact that the introduction of digital forms of money 
may affect the international monetary system, may affect the configuration of reserve currencies, and thus may require us to work a little differently in order to ensure the stability of the international monetary system and the availability of funds in case countries need them. So that's more where we're thinking. So in other words, we're thinking more about the macroeconomic implications and how we might adapt to those as opposed to incorporating explicit technologies. I do think those those potential macroeconomic uh, implications are are very exciting to think about, and hopefully some great uh, future potential there that the whole world may benefit from. With that, I'll ask just one final uh, question that I'm curious about, uh, timeline wise. How how are you thinking about? I know a lot of people are saying, well, you know, CBDCs aren't going to be realistic for another. Five years, ten years. Everybody kind of has their own, um, you know, viewpoint. Some some countries are already, you know, as we discussed, piloting and testing them now. So of that kind of range of opinions, what what would be your over under on their fruition? <laughs> it's uh, we, I guess we should we should revisit this question in five years and see who's right. I mean, you know, some countries have already launched a CBDC. So in a way, the future has materialized already. The question, I suppose, is what about the bigger countries? When will they issue a CBDC? And it's, it's very hard to tell. Um, you know, we, we don't have uh, any, any inside information on this. But we know that they're working on this and um, that they're keeping an open mind. And that, you know, they themselves don't know exactly because... Countries want to get this right before, more so than being first to market. And so it's not clear how long it'll take to be convinced that, number one, CBDCs will reach their objectives, and number two, uh, they will not be uh, destabilizing and that their, their risks can be contained. Once countries are satisfied with both of those questions, we may see a lot more CBDCs being uh, implemented. And I think the other thing is that countries are also watching the private sector very closely. Uh, there are strong network effects in payments and solutions that might be offered by the private sector could become entrenched relatively quickly. Countries are also watching uh, that development and trying to contain risks through uh, regulation. I know I promised one last question, but I actually do have one other. Is um, on as you mentioned the containment of risks. I think it is very normal for us in the financial industry to really focus on risks and mitigation of risks. But on the flip side, do you see any clear potential opportunities or stabilizing functions potentially if a CBDC were to be introduced to financial stability? So rather than only asking the question of how do we mitigate risks of financial stability that these present, which I think are more obvious questions, you know, does anything hit you yet as a stabilizer? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a view on this, and then perhaps uh, Gabriel uh, might have another. But my view is that CBDCs could help interoperability between uh, privately issued digital payment solutions. So central bank reserves already serve that function between commercial bank deposits. If I have an account at bank A and you have an account at bank B, when, when I pay you, my bank settles a transaction by transferring central bank reserves to your bank. And the fact that both banks uh, can hold and transact in a common riskless 
a settlement asset makes this transaction possible. It basically makes interoperable payments between commercial banks possible. So CBDCs could also offer that level of interoperability between, um, say, different stablecoin providers or between e-money providers. Whatever it is, the existence of a common and riskless settlement asset can ensure interoperability. And interoperability will reduce uh, rents, uh, will reduce the size of private net payment networks, and thus help financial stability, right? So that, that, I think, is an important factor to take into account. And I can add also one factor which I've always think is, is a bit underrated in, in terms of what it could add in terms of stability is that it's another form of, of money. Say that you, often we think about CBDC as increasing resilience by adding another form of digital payments that could be used if the other networks are down, this one could still function, at least in some scenarios. But the other thing is, if you think about uh, if the risk of, uh, for instance, a digital bank run. So if a digital bank run could potentially uh, occur if people are concerned about the health of the banking, overall banking system, that's when you can have the spillover effect. So even banks that are not really in danger uh, become in danger because people are in panic and they withdraw. I think that if these people have, say that they have a wallet of uh, risk-free CBDC. That could actually help stabilize the situation because they know that they have enough money to basically at least do their own spending in the near future in these wallets, which could potentially make them less prone to withdraw all their money from the banks, or at least a little bit of that money. They will still let that be there. So I think through that, I think that people could become more secure and trust the system more if, if, if there was an, an extra uh, safeguard for them, which is also digital. Well, great. Well, it's a, about time. So thank you very much, uh, Tommaso and Gabriel, for being with us today and for sharing your views and recent work on central bank digital currency. Thanks for having us. A pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of FRT. We look forward to having you join us again on upcoming episodes. You can always check them out on the IAF website as well at IAF.com.